Blaise Pascal was one of the most important scholars of the 17th century. He was a great scientist, mathematician, and inventor. He was famous for some real key breakthroughs. In fact, many of them he made while he was still a teenager. He was also a devoted Christian who wrote what is considered to be one of the best apologetic works of his time. But he wasn't always a believer. After spending most of his life only nominally interested in religion, he had a dramatic conversion. And it was due to an incredible mystical experience. It was November 23rd, 1654, and Pascal was home alone. The sun was set, all was dark. He was most likely preparing for bed when suddenly, around 10.30 at night, something supernatural happened. It's not, clearly, it's not clear exactly what he saw, but this amazing experience lasted for a full two hours. It was known as the night of fire. And as soon as it was over, he grabbed a pen and paper and he wrote down what was swirling in his head. Here's some of what he wrote. The year of grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement. From about half past 10 at night until half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. He then took a piece of paper on which he recorded his words, and he carefully sewed it into the inside of his jacket, which he kept with him for the rest of his life. This was not discovered until after his death. Pascal had a conversion of the heart, a radical transformation, all owing to whatever it was that he saw and experienced in those two hours. His life was forever changed. You know, we all live life according to some dream or vision that we have. Maybe it's to be married or to have a certain job or to complete the degree. Maybe it's to be able to retire and have some years left to enjoy. Well, whatever it is, we aim our life in that direction. It becomes determinative for us. It's a picture we hold in the mind, and it finds expression in our decisions and in our actions. What we see or what we imagine is how we live. On this last Sunday in the season following Epiphany, we have a manifestation here, a vision of Jesus in glory that reveals in blazing wonder the true reality of Christ, unveiled for just a moment. It's offered as a compelling vision for where the story is headed. But the disciples miss it for the most part. It could have been for them a life-changing, transforming experience that would have shaped the rest of their days. But they weren't there yet. They had their own competing visions of reality that they had not yet surrendered. But also, I think it's something they would never forget that would come back to them later and give perspective. 
Remember that this season that we're in, at least for a couple of more days, began with Jesus' baptism and the voice of God in that baptism declaring Jesus as God's special beloved son. And now it ends with the voice of God again, this time declaring Jesus' sonship to the disciples. And between these two revelatory events, we've seen over and over the revealed reality of who Jesus is, human and divine. And we see why that matters. In his teaching, in the calling of the disciples, in his acts of healing, Jesus is shown to be more than a prophet, more than a rabbi, which is what Peter calls him here, more than a moral example. He is what the voice has declared him to be. Truly, the Son of God. And this revelation then, once we've seen it, requires a response. And it requires a response from us. We have decisions to make. How then will we live? And what vision of reality will shape our allegiance? Will it be the king and the kingdom or something else? Around this episode in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's headed to suffering and to death. They don't understand this and they certainly don't accept it. Remember, Jesus, uh, Peter rebukes him. <laughs> in, the, in that interchange, says, get behind me, Satan. He sees He sees the voice of Satan speaking through Peter's uh, refutation there, right? But he also tells them, both his disciples and the crowd that's following him, he says, whoever wants to follow me will face hardship and will face difficulty. Not only that, you'll have to take up your cross in order to follow. It's after this that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to be alone with them And you know what happens. The transfiguration is mystical, to be sure. It defies our categories, even our language to explain it. Mark's words fail him. All he can say is that Jesus' appearance was so bright, no one could bleach clothes to match it. Glory was showing through Jesus' human body. He was radiating eternity. It was nothing less than a pulling back of the curtain that kept others from seeing the fullness of Jesus' divinity. It was not just showing off because the transfiguration is tied to the path that Jesus must tread through suffering and death. Like our collect says today, we go back and just take a look at it. It's strengthening to bear the cross. It will be death, after all, that will reveal the glory of Christ. And in this vision, Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, pointing to him, affirming his role as Messiah and Lord. Do you know, this is the defining vision for the Christian. It's Christ in glory, pointing the way to victory over sin and death. This is the kingdom of God, dropped down into our midst, not hidden, but clearly shown. It's a preview, if you will, and a powerful one at that. We're meant to see Jesus as he is. It's a picture of encouragement, one that gives hope and strength and assurance of God's kingdom prevailing over the brokenness of the world. This is good news. Now, Peter has his own understanding of what he's seeing, right? And Peter misses the truth. The disciples are terrified They're overwhelmed. 
They know they're witnessing something extraordinary, but they do not understand what it is. We're told that Peter was so frightened he didn't know what to say. Of course, silence never occurred to Peter. And sometimes we're like that as well. The disciples are operating from another vantage point. They miss what they're seeing and what they're hearing. In fact, the disciples have been missing it all along, and they would continue to do so. So the voice of God addresses them directly, and it calls them to pay attention where it needs to be, and that is on Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to him. I go back to my earlier question, and that is, what is the defining vision of your life, of my life? What is the vision that sets the direction of our life as a church? Do we have a vision of the crucified and risen Christ reigning in glory in his kingdom, bringing about his justice and righteousness, assured of his victory over sin and death, with hope and confidence in his power, mercy, compassion, and love? Does this shape our life and our expectations? Do we know the joy and the freedom of this? And do we trust that there will be ultimate victory over injustice and pain and brokenness? Do we have a vision of the king of glory who has come to heal with his love? Or do we hold to some other and lesser image that guides us? Certainly there's plenty in the world to dampen our outlook, to make us cynical, critical, fearful, to divide us and keep us divided. But Jesus told his followers to take heart, to not be afraid because he had overcome the world. Phil Grant says that a vision is the dominant factor that governs your life. It determines all the choices that you're making. It's what's left over after all the layers are peeled away like an onion, clinging like glue to the inside of your rib cage. It's what your mind naturally gravitates toward when it is not legitimately concentrating on something else. It's what determines your friendships and your relationships that you're cultivating. It's what your prayers are about. It's what you dream about. It's what you're giving money toward. So I ask again, is our vision one of the kingdom and the values of the kingdom of God, the glory of Christ? Paul says that this is internal. This is natural to the life of the Christian because God has made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That vision will give us hope. It enables us to bring the light of Christ into the darkness of the world in a certain way, a way that is winsome, a way that is inviting, a way that is affirming. As people who have caught a glimpse of the Lord's glory, we know the evil of the world has been defeated. We look around, we see the injustice. We live in the midst of brokenness. We know sin only too well. We've had an unbelievable year of all of it. And we're deeply affected. But we do not despair. We do not lose hope. Because we've been given a glimpse of glory of the Lord and his righteousness. And that's something we have to offer to others. I have a couple of examples that I'd like to just put out there for us. One's fictional, the other one is not fictional and probably more important than the first one. 
definitely more important than the first one. You may know the film Shawshank Redemption. I don't think I've used it in a sermon for a while, so I'm free to do so. It's one of my favorite films just because I love the, the redemptive theme of it. It's based on a Stephen King short story. It's about a man accused of a crime, a murder, murders that he did not commit, but he is found guilty and he's sent to prison, life in prison anyway. This prison's a cruel and hard place, full of violence and corruption. But this character, Andy, seems to exist in a place apart from the reality of the prison. He talks about hope a lot, something the other prisoners tell him is a dangerous thing to talk about. He's described when walking in the prison yard like someone who's just taking a stroll, moving through the day without a care in the world. It was a brutal place, and Andy experienced its brutality. But he also showed kindness and goodness to others. He could do so for two reasons. One, he knew he was not guilty. And secondly, that he would not always be there. His vision of freedom, spurred on by his innocence, was the driving force of every moment. He lived like a free man, even in prison. The other example is much more important. And um, I think about the, the work, the important work of Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King. He had a vision. He called it a dream. And he talked about the dream often. And that was his reference point. Now, certainly he was aware of all the injustice. He was aware of what he was up against in terms of, of racial uh, healing, of, of civil rights, and so on. But he cast the vision of what it would be when that was resolved, when that was healed. And that was, that, that's really how his life functioned. He, he was in that place already. And the wonderful thing about it, it was the kind of vision that you could invite, invite people into, right? Even what ended up being his last speech, it was about seeing. He said, I've been up to the mountain and I saw the future and we will get there. So he had a vision that was actually formed deeply by his faith One way or another, vision transforms us. Will we be more like Jesus or will we look more like the world? So the question is then, how can we recover? How can we have strengthened the kingdom vision in us? How can we see again the image of glory and light in the midst of the darkness all around us, and especially in the midst of what's been such a hard year you know, it's not easy to know how to be in the world and not of it. It's not. It's not easy to focus on the hope rather than the problems. But it's vital for our flourishing and for our faithfulness. So what do we do? It's not too complicated, actually. But it is demanding. Peter and James and John saw what they saw because they were close to Jesus. They went with him. They stayed close to him. They didn't fully understand it. They were instructed to heed Jesus' words in order to gain understanding. But to have a renewed vision, to have eyes to see the kingdom of God, requires us to press into the things we already know, the spiritual disciplines of our life together. 
worship, prayer, scripture, mutual commitment and care. And we will have opportunity to take stock in our lives on these things in the coming weeks of Lent. It's about pressing in and not pulling away. Staying close to the Lord and one another, even when we differ, even when there are tensions, even when it is uncomfortable. Because what we feed on, what we give attention to, will determine the vision of the way forward. We may need to have our vision reoriented, maybe even replaced. Richard Foster observes that God has to help us sometimes let go of our tiny vision in order to release the greater good that he has in store for us. It's a gift, but it's also our response. Elijah told Elisha to stay. (laughs) Just stay there. I got to go on. But you know Elisha's response, not once, but several times, that he would not. As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you, he said. Can we say that? Pressing in is key to having our vision renewed by the Holy Spirit. Today is Valentine's Day. (laughs) and You wonder where I'm going with that, having just been here. So I hope you bought a card, guys, or flowers, or made a special dinner, or did something, you know, put some effort in. But, you know, there was a real person named Valentine. Actually, there were several uh, historic figures, so sometimes the stories get a little confused. But we believe, as best as we can determine, that Valentine was a priest and a physician who lived in the 3rd century in Rome. And at the time, the empire was led by Claudius II, who was persecuting Christians. Now, Claudius had forbidden any new marriages to take place in Rome. And he had done this because he was trying to build up the military, and he thought, you know, unmarried soldiers are a lot more committed than married ones who don't have concerns back home. So he forbade marriage, new marriages. And, you know, this was a very permissive society sexually. So all the stuff that was going on could continue to go on without marriage. But for Christians, that was not the case. For Christians who see marriage as a a sacramental union, who see it as a symbol of Christ and the church, who desire to practice chaste sexuality, this was a threat to the future of the church and a burden to the people. So Valentine made it possible for Christian couples to marry in secret. When it was discovered, he was imprisoned, he was tortured, he was beheaded. This is on February 14th. 270. For a thousand years, Valentine was remembered for his absolute commitment to the gospel in the face of martyrdom. That was his legacy, his commitment, his pressing in. It was the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer in the 14th century that started the whole courtly and romantic love thing that we have today. He wrote a poem where he included, included Valentine in that. But it doesn't have anything to do with Valentine. We can remember for his devotion to the gospel and the good of the kingdom and the church. His vision determined his action, even in the midst of suffering and death. We have been in a season of revealing, haven't we, the last few weeks. Over and over, we've been challenged and encouraged to see things with new eyes, to be ready to catch a glimpse of what the Lord is revealing to us. This week we move into Lent, a time that can be full of life, actually. 
and renewed energy and our ability to know the Lord's love and to love God and others in return. So what is our vision? Is it the kingdom of God? Is it full and rich and broad enough to accommodate difference? Is it life in Jesus' name? Or is it something else? What do we desire it to be? Because where our desire is, is where we're headed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.